listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. the show this is the fret files podcast the guitar repair podcast the guitar workshop podcast we try to be a beacon of guitar truth in a sea of guitar misinformation on the internet and i hope we are i'd like to introduce my lovely wife and co-host melissa hello everybody my name is eric daw i'm the host of the show uh I really don't have much to tell you about. Uh, sometimes I've got news from the shop or, you know, an update on the guitars I'm making. I, I do have some guitars that are almost done. And uh, I think it's going to be another few weeks before those are finished. I've got a uh, a blonde Telecaster-style guitar and a shell pink Telecaster-style guitar that should be done mid-September. 2016. So, um, one thing I, I do want to start the show off with, though, uh, I, I really want to encourage you to participate in the show. And you can do that by going to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and you can send your question or comment there. And uh, I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to participate, of course, is you can call, leave a voicemail, 757-774-8482, and uh, those calls get priority. They'll be at the front of the show. This this month, we don't have any calls. That's all right. But I would like to actually make a call to my friend Chad. You know, uh, this this guy, I, I know this guy named Chad, who lives on the other side of the country, but he's he's a repairman, a guitar repairman, and he's going through like a serious, serious life change event, and uh, I just wanted to get an update from him because it sounds really interesting. What do you think? Sounds good. Let's give him a call. Joining me here on the phone is Chad... Gerby of Pittsburgh. That's right, isn't it? Pittsburgh? That sure is. But not for long. <laughs> is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, the reason I, I reached out to you, um, I've uh, found you or you found me on Facebook, one of the two, and then uh, I've been following your posts on Facebook, and I'm really glad that I'm friends with you on Facebook because you post really good pictures and videos of repairs that you're doing. Which, Thank you. Yeah, which is something that I'm terrible at. I almost never do that. Um, <laughs> and I really should do more of it, especially uh, after seeing uh, some of the stuff you've been posting. It's just really cool, man. I appreciate you saying that, Eric. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
just from seeing that, I can tell that you're a more than qualified repair guy. You're doing excellent work. And you've been uh, at the same place there in Pittsburgh for a while. But the reason I reached out to you is because I saw your Facebook post about your move. I, I wondered if you would uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how that ha- came about. Sure, sure. Well, um, yeah, like you said, I've been working at this store in Pittsburgh called N Stuff Music, uh, formerly Pianos and Stuff, but we stopped yes. selling pianos a long time ago. So it's uh, just been guitars, well, guitars and a lot of other things that we sell. Uh, but I've been the repair technician there for four years. Uh, prior to that, I studied guitar building and repair at the Gallup School of Luthery in Big Rapids, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I've just been uh, living and breathing guitars and guitar repairs for the past five or so years. Yeah, yeah I know how that goes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I've um, being at this shop and uh, running it, uh, the uh, the last year or so since the uh, previous head luthier retired, um, it's been a wonderful opportunity to build my skills and to get my hands on a lot of instruments. Uh, certainly owe a lot to the folks running that shop. They're really wonderful folks. And if anybody's in the Pittsburgh area, check out End Stuff Music. Um, it's really, really an awesome place to be. But working by myself effectively i do have a, a a guy working with me doing setups and other things like that but um i've always really believed that uh working with a team of luthiers uh specifically uh under a mentor of sorts is really one of the most valuable things that anybody who's trying to learn any skill set uh, can do to increase their knowledge and capabilities in a certain craft. Mm-hmm. And um, so my fiance and I uh, decided uh, to coincide with our uh, decision to get married. We're getting married in oh, about two and a half weeks here. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so life is moving a million miles a minute. But we decided to kind of coincide with our marriage to... Uh, take a leap and go to the biggest music city in the country, Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I was just down there uh, interviewing for some jobs uh, a couple weeks ago, and I have been fortunate enough to uh, be offered a position with Joe Glazer at Glazer Instruments to work with him and his team of luthiers. There in, in Nashville? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, you know, being with a a group of experts who are all kind of work with their specialties and, you know, really do some of the finest work around, you know, anywhere you can find really, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that for, for a a guy like me, relatively young, you know, uh, but, but, uh, very, very committed to this field and to performing the best guitar repair work that, you know, I possibly can working and learning under a team like that is really the opportunity of a lifetime. So yeah. very, it, uh, very, very happy and excited. Man, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, that's a really pro shop that you're moving to in a really uh, pro city, you know, a music city. 
um, yeah. maybe the top music city in in the country. So um, con- congratulations, man. Thank you very and, much. I really and, appreciate that. And Eric. that's yeah, and that's really just why I wanted to have you on the show for a second was to say congrats because you've submitted stuff to the podcast and I really appreciated your participation and I I uh, have been following your work on Facebook and I I respect your work and I just wanted to reach out and say congrats on getting married and moving to Nashville and uh, the new job. Thank you, Eric. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's super cool. And I'd, I'd really love you uh, to keep us posted on what's going on down there. And maybe here in six months or a year, we'll do a full interview with you and just talk shop. <laughs> that, that'd be fantastic. I would look forward to that. Great. And um, yeah, you mentioned the, uh, the the Facebook stuff. I'm, you know, trying to stay as active as I can, uh, not only on Facebook, but uh, also on Instagram, I got, I've, I'm, I'm posting stuff there regularly at, as well. It's how can, ch- how, yeah. How can people follow you there? Sure, it's a uh, Chad Gerby underscore guitar repair. So that's uh, Chad and then G E R B E underscore guitar repair. And you can you can follow the work that I'm doing there. And uh, feel free to contact me in any ways. Uh, anybody out there listening, you know, I'm always, always happy to touch base with anyone about, you know, my passion, which is, yeah. you know, fixing guitars. You that's, and I like, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. But, um, that's but, great. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to say to you how much I, you know, appreciate what you do putting together this podcast. I've you know, been, been listening ever since, uh, the guys at the fretboard journal, uh, initially plugged you maybe, oh, cool. I don't know, a while ago, a yeah, year, year and a half a year ago. ago. Least, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And just, yeah, every, 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 every episode that comes out, I eat it up and I just, okay. uh, I'm really appreciative of what, uh, what you and Melissa are doing over there. Thanks man. It's been fun. We, we, we do it cause we love it. You know, that's, that's, that's the, that's the only reason why one should do what they do. Yeah, totally. Cool. Chad, thank you so much for joining me, man. I really appreciate it, and uh, good luck in your new adventures. All right, Eric. Take care. Have a wonderful evening. Best of luck, man. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you. Take care. And there you have it. It's good to hear from Chad. That's that's really cool. Yeah, it's really cool. All the changes that he's going through there. Remember when you moved to Seattle? Yeah. I mean, that's... Was it... Were you, were you scared? Uh, I, I remember you really didn't want to go anywhere. You didn't want to drive anywhere for a while. Yeah, I was terrified of driving. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember my cat was really upset. Oh. Well, that's a shame. Yeah. Uh, check us out online. You know, if you go, if if you're on Facebook, find us on Facebook, The Fret Files. I think it's just facebook.com slash The Fret Files. You can also check out the, uh, the guitars I'm making there. Pinup Custom Guitars is on Facebook. And uh, yeah, check those out for sure. So there's my shameless plug. Shall we do some questions? Sounds good. Before we do that, I want to say for the last half of the show, we're going to have a great interview with a a guy that I really admire, a vintage guitar expert, a guitar repairman named Mark Tossman, and uh, that's going to be a great interview, so stick around for that. But first, the questions. We get letters. We get stacks and stacks of letters. Help! Against my better judgment, I had my favorite guitar refretted, and it killed the tone. It's just a 90s Martin D18, but I love it. Or I did love it until I had it refretted, and now the resonance and sustain is just gone from the guitar. 
I don't understand how this happened. The only thing done to it was frets. I asked the tech who did it what happened to the sustain, and he just gave me a shoulder shrug and told me it will just take time to get used to with the new frets. But I can't understand what happened to the sustain. What can I do? Any suggestions? Is my guitar forever doomed to sound this way? It feels great, but the tone is dead. Help, Brandon in St. George, Utah. Hmm. Thanks for the question, Brandon. Um, you know, it's hard to speculate because I can't inspect the guitar in person, but I've got a couple of theories. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is that the frets might have been improperly installed. Uh, if the fret doesn't have a really solid connection with the with the neck, with the fingerboard, then it will actually absorb string energy and kill the sustain. So um, that could be something that's going on. Uh, you know, sometimes when you refret a guitar, you're putting the tang. The tang is the part of the fret that goes in the slot, right? We all know that. Uh, you're putting the tang into a slot... And if the slot is fatigued, or if it's, you know, kind of worn out from uh, being refretted one too many times, or uh, if it's just worn out from having the frets pulled out, and you're putting <clears throat> the new frets in and they're not tight enough in the slot, then that fret can wiggle. And we're talking about just microscopic movement here, you know? It'll wiggle with with the string energy. And rather than ring out, the string will transfer that energy into anything that moves if it can. And uh, that's that might be what's happening, you know. So uh, I like to glue my frets in. I know some, some techs don't, some do. I like to glue mine in because it really does uh, help preserve tone and sustain. Um, so it could, be, it could be as simple as that, that the, the frets are just ever so slightly loose in the slot where they weren't before, and that can have a big effect on, on sustain and on tone. The other thing that might have happened is if he if he messed around with the saddle at all, uh, if the saddle is loose in the slot, same thing, same kind of deal. It, it, it will absorb string energy rather than deflect it back, you know, into this guitar, into the string. Um, so those are my two theories. It's, it's maybe the saddle, and it, but it's most likely just... The frets are now a little bit loose in there. <clears throat> so what can you do about it? Well, um, if you brought that to my shop, I would do some investigating, and if I found that the frets were loose, I might just try to seep some uh, super glue into the frets as they sit. As long as the fret job was done right and looks good, you could actually um, you can actually seep glue in there and glue the frets down, uh, that might be one option. So I don't know. There's, like I say, it's, it's hard to give you a recommendation because I can't see the guitar in person, but that's, those are my thoughts. So if, if those frets are loose, is it something that is like a loose tooth, you can go in there and wiggle it? Or is No, we're talking about really minor. So how do you even my, tell if the fret is loose if you, if you can't tell? Well, <clears throat> if you've got, um, like... If, if if I'm testing a whole fretboard and I've got one loose fret, you can hear a difference when you tap on it. So I'll take my X-Acto knife and turn it upside down. So I'll use the butt end, the uh -huh. flat end, 
of the knife, and you can tap on each fret, and you'll hear a nice, solid sound. And when you hit the one that's loose, it's a different sound. Hmm. Okay. You can really hear it. Cool. You can really hear it. And But I'd be able to tell, I mean, you know, if you just took some, some fret pullers and just see how easy the fret comes up when you try to pull it out, if they're loose in the slot, it's going to, they're just going to, they're just going to zip right out with no, I mean, you could almost grab the fret with your fingernails and pull it out. I've seen that before, you know. Wow. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's probably not something that the untrained eye is going to be able to look at or try to wiggle it like a loose tooth, like you said. It's not that loose. It's just that it's not tight and secure in there. Okay. Yeah, minor difference. But it makes a big it makes a big impact on the tone and the yeah. sustain. Well, good luck, Brandon. <clears throat> Why do old acoustic guitars need neck resets? What happens to them over time that necessitates the neck being removed and having wood shaved off from the heel? It seems to me that at one point when the guitar was new, it must have had a good neck angle with the heel, how it with the heel how it was when it left the factory. So why can't a neck angle be corrected without removing wood? Does the body warp? Does the neck block shift? Any explanation would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Marty in Tacoma, Washington. Wow, Marty, what an interesting question, man. Uh, really a thoughtful question. The whole guitar distorts. That's what that's what's going on. Just because that, it's wood and... It, uh, because it's wood and it's under pretty immense tension from the strings. Sure. I mean, we're talking about steel string acoustic guitars. You know, they're under a lot of tension and they're hollow, you know, and they're they're pretty lightly braced, some of them. Um, the whole guitar distorts and shifts and all it takes is just tiny little movements before before everything is just way off. You know, I used to think that it was something happening in the in the block, in the neck block. But it's really more systemic than that. It's really the entire guitar. That's my opinion. That's what I think. You know, it's hard to say. Wouldn't it be fascinating if you could see a uh, sped-up time-lapse video of just what happens to a guitar over 50 years, over yeah. th- 30, 30 years, 50 years? That would be interesting. Just from the string tension and the seasons, you know, humidity, temperature going up and down. Yeah. Maybe we should make one. Yeah, right. Uh, but that's a question I'm going to I'm gonna throw that question to Mark Tossman in the last half of the show here oh. and see what he has to say. But that's my opinion. The whole guitar just distorts, there, and there's, there's just kind of no way around that. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Marty. Is there any way to tell if a potentiometer is audio taper versus logarithmic taper? It seems that most pots aren't marked, and I just acquired a big lot of new old stock CTS pots, and I can't seem to make heads or tails of the parts numbers stamped in the back. They are marked 500K, but I don't know if they're audio taper or log taper. How do I tell? Thanks, Dean in Missouri. Hi, Dean. That's cool, man. How lucky are you to to find a stash of new old stock pots? (coughs) Excuse me. Um, yeah, and it's hard to tell because they're really not marked. Some some companies, some potentiometer manufacturers, electronics manufacturers, will mark their pots, A, for audio, 
B for logarithmic or uh, wait a minute. So that's, let me, I have to think about this for a minute. A for audio, B for linear, and C for reverse audio. Yeah. He, I think he threw me off a little bit with this question there, because I think audio and logarithmic are the same thing. Mm. Uh, yeah. But audio, I think he means linear, I'm sure. There's audio pots and there's linear pots. Those are the ones you see most often. Audio pots and linear pots. And if you could... Uh, <clears throat> It, to understand what they're doing, if you were if you picture a graph with an a-axis and a x-axis or x and y-axis, right? A linear pot starts at the lowest point and then goes up to the highest point, and it's just a straight line. Sure, that makes sense. An audio taper pot is has a curve to it. Okay. It's like a hockey stick, you know, curve. Right, where it very slowly goes up and then all of a sudden it goes up a lot right at the end. Sure. A reverse audio pot is the op- opposite of that. It has a an, an over arc. Yeah, sharp in th- sharp up at the beginning and then and then tapers, tapers off. off. Okay. Yeah. And those are used for left handed guitars sometimes. Oh. Reverse audio taper. That makes sense. <clears throat> for some reason our ears hear uh an audio pot as a more natural sweep when you go from zero to ten. Really? Then it does a linear. Yeah. So uh, we usually use audio taper pots in, in guitar electronics. And his question was, what? Is there a way to tell? Yeah. If they're not marked, there is a way to tell. Um, if you've got a volt ohm meter, and if you, if you're buying new old stock of CTS pots, you probably do. Uh, if you've got a volt ohm meter, <clears throat> you can check out the pot, and the first thing you can do is start by measuring the resistance of the pot. So you'll uh, uh, hook your meter up to um, the middle lug and then one of the outer lugs, and as you sweep it back and forth, you know one side will say zero. And then the other side will say, if it's a 500k ohm pot, it'll say somewhere between 450 and 550k ohms. They're not very exact. Hmm. Sometimes they're as low as 400. Wow. Or, yeah, so they, they vary. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, so so you'll, to to see whether it's audio or linear, you want to put it in the very middle. Adjust adjust the shaft so that it's right in the center. And an audio pot, they're usually uh, what's called 10% uh, audio, <clears throat> audio taper pot. An audio pot will be 10% of the full value at the halfway point. So it will say 50K. So a 500K pot in the center should read about 50K. Sure. And a linear would be And halfway. a linear would read half. So a linear would say 250K at the halfway point. That makes sense. Does, if that makes... Yeah, there you go. Awesome. That's how to tell. I like that. Yeah, good. Thanks, Dean. Hi, Eric and Melissa. Congratulations on having a healthy baby. 
Thank you. I am building my first guitar from scratch. It is your favorite, a jazz master. It's not a true jazz master, obviously, just styled after one. I was a bit eager in my naivety and routed out the two pickup cavities a bit too far back. Now the bridge will not fit where it needs to be for the length of the neck. My question is, would it be possible to extend the neck pocket down so the nut is the appropriate distance from the bridge? It is a Telecaster-style neck. Also, what would you recommend for just the necessary tools for the new hobbyist luthiers? Thank you so much, and I love the show. Keep it up. Matt from the Thumb of Michigan. Cool. Right on, Matt. Thanks for the question. Um, If you need to extend... The neck pocket to get the neck closer to the bridge. That's really a that's really a big problem, my man. You got a big problem there. Um, first of all, the neck starts to taper off uh, pretty soon after it leaves the neck pocket. <clears throat> so that's not really an option unless you're just going to go maybe a quarter inch or so, and then you're going to throw. I mean, you know, the neck mounting holes are going to, you're going to have to redrill those and everything. Uh, not a big deal, but I mean, it could be done if you're just going a little bit. But uh, if you need to go much more than about a quarter inch, you're going to have big trouble. Sorry for the bad news. <laughs> Do you have a different solution for him? I don't. I mean, if 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 the bridge is in the wrong place, you, you're going to have to either move the neck or the bridge. Man, that sucks. Could you fill the holes and reroute it? Well, I guess so. What would you fill it with? Wood? Well, hope preferably wood. <laughs> preferably wood. <laughs> yeah, I don't know because it's, I mean, I mean, I'm just totally shooting from the hip because I, I, I haven't seen the guitar he's talking about. Right. But he's going to have to move something. Well, Matt, I hope, I, hope, I wish you luck. Yeah, sorry, Matt. Uh, was there a follow-up question at the uh, end there? How, what, what would you recommend just the necessary tools for the newest, new hobbyist luthiers? Oh, well, you can sure go a long way with just a few hand tools. Nut files are uh, definitely at the top of the list. Um, a good set of fret files if you're going to be doing repair work. Um, what else? You know, somebody asked this a while ago, and the they they asked uh, what what would be the best um, like power tool to get, and I said a belt sander. So get get yourself a good belt and disc sander. Really, really is a big time saver if you're trying to shape nuts and saddles by hand. That can take hours, but it, it turns into just a you know just a few minutes on a belt sander. If uh, say you're just trying to do your own setups at home, what what's mm-hmm. what's the main thing that you need to do a setup? Allen wrenches, uh, a good f- flathead and Phillips screwdriver assortment. Um, the proper tools to adjust truss rods, which vary. That you know, some of them are sockets, and some of them are are Phillips, and some of them are Allen wrench. Um, so yeah, a good set of Allen wrenches, metric and standard, good set of screwdrivers, a good socket set, 
you know, just kind of your typical tools that you'd have to work on just about anything, except some of them are pretty guitar-specific. Um, some of those tiny little Allen wrenches you'd, you'd almost never use on anything else, hmm. but they're they're used on guitars all the time. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck, Matt. Does shielding tape in body cavities make a significant difference in reducing noise? Thanks. Crash. And that website is crashonharp.net. Oh, yeah. Crash is a harmonica player. I checked out his website. It's oh, cool. okay. Yeah. Cool. Harp. Harmonica. Right. I couldn't figure out what was going on there. Thanks for the question, Crash. Uh, the answer really is that it, it depends. Um. It can. It can help significantly, but, uh, you know, it just depends on the guitar and it depends on the situation where you're, where you're using it. Uh, if, if you've got like a Gibson-style guitar with humbuckers where the humbuckers have covers on them that are grounded and then it's got braided wire that goes to the pots and everything's grounded, you know, shielding it doesn't really help anything because everything's already pretty well shielded. If you've got a jazz master that's unshielded, those have just like miles and miles of wire going back and forth to all the switches and knobs and doodads. Uh, and if one of those is unshielded, yeah, that's that's pretty bad hum. But even shielded, they hum. Because most of the hum is come, coming from the pickups. Huh. And there's... There's really not a, a ton you can do about that. Um, so it it does. It depends. Uh, I've seen a lot of guys who, you know, I work on a lot of guys' guitars where they've done their own electronics work. And, uh, you know, when you buy a pickup, it comes with like three feet of wire attached to it. And they'll just leave all the wire on there and just co- coil it up in the cavity, you know, rather than trim the wire to length. And that's just a really good antenna leaving all that extra wire in there it's just huh. it's just going to buzz worse so it just depends on the situation but it yes properly done and it has to be grounded you can't just you can't just put shielding tape in there and call it good you have to you have to go the full way and ground it with a ground wire and make sure that it's all grounded um because if you if you shield your guitar and then don't ground that shielding, it actually just makes it worse. Huh. Yeah, we've talked about that on the show yeah. before. Yeah, so, yeah, the, the real answer is it depends on what the situation is, but yes, it can help. Cool. Thanks, Harp Crash. Thanks, Harp. Crash on Harp. Harp Crash. Harp Crash. Harp Crash. That'd be a good band name <laughs> for a, a blues band, a harp, blues harmonica band. Harp Crash. Harp Crash. Take that one to the bank, Crash. Thanks, Crash. Hey, Eric and Melissa. Really appreciate the effort you put into the podcast with your busy lives and all. Eric, have you ever built a bass guitar? What are your thoughts on staggered versus flat pickup pole pieces? Keep up the great work, you two. Regards, Jonathan in Victoria, Canada. Now, before you before you answer this, mm-hmm. I just want to thank Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Because every week, or every every month... We only do one a month. He always has a question for us. And we really appreciate it, Jonathan. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. You're awesome. Yeah. Uh, 
Have I ever built a bass guitar? The only bass guitar I ever built was just a goofy project that I I, I wanted a I wanted an upright bass that looked like a that looked like a hillbilly built it. It, it was just a soda crate, you know, like the old fifties, forties wooden soda crate. Sure. With a like a a crutch on the bottom and a and a neck that I just carved out of a out of an old uh pine stud that I tore out of my shop when we when we remodeled my shop. It was an old original stud from the nineteen forties construction and carved a neck out of it and stuck it on this, you know, on this soda crate and made a hillbilly bass. So have I ever made a bass? Not really. <laughs> yes, unless you no. count unless you count that one and I, I kinda <laughs> don't because it was just a goofball project. And as far as staggered versus flat pole pieces go, um, I prefer flat, but it's all personal preference. We've talked about it on the show before. Um, a lot of it depends on how close you like your pickups, how extreme the stagger is, what the radius of your fingerboard is. There's just so many variables, and I've, I have I think I spent 20 minutes once talking about it, so I'm going to just leave it at that, but... Um, if, if you, uh, ever want to go through our backlog, I think, uh, it was, uh, probably one of the first 10 episodes we talked about, we talked about, uh, staggered versus flat pull pieces. Cool. Thanks again, Jonathan. Hello, Eric. Thanks for the great podcast. I have a couple of questions. I have a Les Paul traditional that has a pickup selector that moves, twists, and does not stay tight for very long. When I look at it with everything off, it is clear that the drilled hole is quite a bit builder, bigger than the actual switch requires, resulting in the play and twist once in, once the outside nut loosens. Is this common, and is there an easy fix you would recommend to get everything nice and tight and stationary? I'm certain I'm certain the twisting can't be good on the wiring. Also, I am building some guitars and came across an interesting problem. When the routing when routing the control cavity, the remaining wood is quite thin on the back of the guitar and is in danger of breaking with any any pressure applied to it. You can see light through it. It is so thin and it is surprising I didn't route through the back. I was thinking of reinforcing it somehow as the rest of the body came out quite nice and that body is made out of ash. Super glue seems to be a fix for so many things. Is it possible to stabilize and reinforce the thin wood with a layer of super glue from the inside? When the lacquer is applied, with, will this also give some support so the thin membrane of wood won't get, doesn't get poked through the, from the back of the guitar? I still have to do some grain and pour filling and final sanding before finishing the guitar so there isn't much wiggle room. Thanks, Eris. Wow. Uh, the routes that are, that have been routed too deep, that's a big problem. Um, I would, I would say, okay, he asked a few things. So is the lacquer going to help stabilize it? No. Uh, would reinforcing it with super glue help? I suppose, but it's really kind of a... A kludge? Yeah, I wouldn't do that. Um, what I would do would be to cut a thin reinforcement out of wood and glue it to the inside of the oh, cavity. Sure. That makes sense. 
that's really what I would want to do. Um, you know, matching wood or not, it's not going to matter because it's in the bottom of a cavity. But yeah, reinforce it with a veneer of of wood. That's what I would do. Can I make a suggestion? Yeah. I'm no guitar builder, but if I came across a problem like this, what I would do is route the west the rest of it out and then just get a cat, you know, one of those cavity covers for the back. The uh control plate covers for the back. Oh. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's that wouldn't work. That's tacky. Right. Yeah. Well, because really you only want access from one side. You don't want to you don't want to hole all the way through your guitar like you can look through it if, with everything off. Okay. Does that I'm make just, sense? Yeah, I guess so. I'm just saying that that's what I would do because I don't do anything right. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, thanks for that. Uh he also asks um pickup selector that is a twist. Oh yeah. Uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind is a giant lock washer, man. Get a lock washer on the inside, you know, a star washer, a lock washer sure. on, the, on the inside. And then when you tighten it up real good and tight, it shouldn't twist anymore. Um, if the hole is too big for a lock washer, then I I don't know. I'm, it must not be because, yeah, I mean, it's, you're, you're able to, it's not so, the hole isn't so big that, that you're not able to tighten the switch. So, yeah, a, a big lock washer on the inside would be uh, the route that I would go. Well, that's an easy fix. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Thanks, Eris. Eric, I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast over the last 18 months, so I thought it was high time I wrote in with a question of my own. I just recently picked up a reissued Danelectro U2 I love the feel of the neck and the sound of the lipstick pickups, but the traditional rosewood saddle bridge makes string changes and intonation relatively difficult. I know there are lots of replacement options, but I don't want to sacrifice the feel of the action, string tension, etc. that the guitar has now. Do you have any recommendations? Thanks, Josh. Yeah, Josh, I do. Um, Danny Electro makes a bridge uh, that they sell on their um, on some of their more high-end, if you can say high-end. They're really not that high-end. But they're reissues uh, that has six individual saddles. You can get it through All Parts or many other places. If you go through All Parts, the part number is SB5800-010. But you can get it just about anywhere. I think it varies from, you know, 40 to 50 bucks online and uh, it's an exact replacement three holes it's not gonna it's not gonna hurt the tone really i think it helps the tone um because you've got metal saddles instead of that little wood popsicle stick bridge so yeah it's definitely an upgrade that i approve of and uh i I, as far as i'm aware that's about the only uh that's about the only option, actually. I don't think there's a whole... I don't think there's a myriad of replacement bridges for those Dan Electros. It's basically that one Korean bridge that Dan Electro offers. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. That I think that does it, doesn't it? That's all of them. Okay, great. Uh, thanks so much for, for participating in the show, everybody. Again, I'd encourage you to do so. 
Go to ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link. Submit your question or comment for the show there. And, you know, while you're there, you can poke around my website. You can see the guitars I make. I do custom pickup builds or pickup rewinds. Anybody that wants to send me a pickup rewind from anywhere in the world, I, I do them. And I get a lot of business that way. Uh, what else? What else can we tell people? Uh, com. Oh, yeah. Melissa makes beautiful guitar straps. Melco Leather. M-E-L-C-O Leather. Yeah, check that out. Dot com. Okay, stick around for a great interview with Mark Tossman after these messages. Hi, podcast fans. Jay Boone from Emerald City Guitars here. We've been down here in Pioneer Square in downtown Seattle for 20 years, and a lot of things have changed. One thing hasn't changed, though. We still have a great selection of used and vintage guitars and amps. Now, that's not all we do down here. We also have a great service department, a great staff that's very knowledgeable, and tons of accessories and effects and just about everything you need if you're a guitar player. So we're celebrating our 20th anniversary this year, and we're doing all kinds of wonderful things, including giving folks great service, great deals, and shipping around the world. Visit our website at emeraldcityguitars.com, and you can see our entire selection of guitars and amps that we have on our floor at any time. We want to thank you guys for all the great years that you've shopped at our store, and that goes for all the folks not only in the Northwest, but around the country and around the world. Emerald City Guitars, your best source for vintage guitars and amps. Hey, this is Darren Jones from Jones and Fisher. Hello, this is Scott Marshall Watson calling. Just wanted to let everyone know how much I love my pinup guitar. Eric Dawes, pinup custom guitars. Can't say enough good things about them. Pinupcustomguitars.com. It's the closest thing that I've personally found to being anything like a, a real vintage 50s Telecaster style guitar. My name is Jay Boone. I am an owner of two pinup guitars. Eric makes guitars that remind me of the, the real vintage style guitars, and that's what appeals to me. PinupCustomGuitars.com. It makes me personally a better player. A very vintage sounding instrument, very light and resonant. And I use it all the time. I play with it regularly. Uh, I love the feel of the neck. It's a fat 50 style neck. This is Joshua Joel here. This guitar makes all other guitars that I've owned personally feel like toys in comparison. I love the guitar. It's my uh, my main rig when I'm out on the road. I, I ended up buying two of them and I, I use them both on a regular basis. I'll tell you what, if I had the money, I'd own 10 of them. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the eagle eye for quality and and, uh, attention to detail. I'm a big fan. Way to go, Eric. Great job, Eric. I really appreciate it. Check one out for yourself. PinUpCustomGuitars.com. That's PinUpCustomGuitars.com. You know, I don't know if you know this, but my wife makes incredible leather goods, specifically guitar straps. She makes hand-tooled, amazing guitar straps, and she's sitting right here looking embarrassed. Thank you for saying that they're beautiful. And um, if you want to check out my guitar straps, you can head over to melcoleather.com. That's M-E-L-C-O leather.com. And that will direct you straight to my Etsy site, where, if you so wish, you can purchase and receive a beautiful, handmade, made-to-order 
guitar strap from yours truly. Do you take custom orders? I do. They're beautiful. You have to see them. MelcoLeather.com. Right? Right. Uh, as I make guitars, you know, we share a shop in the backyard there. As I'm making guitars, she's sitting in the other corner making straps, and I see her make these straps. She's so meticulous and so gifted. And Thanks. You're such a craftsman. Craftswoman? You're such a crafty person. You're so crafty. Uh, really high-quality leather, handmade leather guitar straps. Check them out. MelcoLeather.com Joining me now on the phone is Mark Tossman, the Martin Whisperer, the vintage Martin expert. <laughs> uh, how long have you been repairing guitars, Mark? Oh, this is uh, about 41 years now. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's great, man. Uh, and how did, Yeah, pretty how, much my lifetime. Yeah, really. How did you get started? Uh, interestingly enough, well, we all probably go back to some exposure to woodworking tools, and in my case... It would be a junior high and high school shop class, and after high school, I was playing guitar, all things guitar, teaching a little guitar, got curious about working on guitars, trying to apply what I knew to it, and feeble attempts at best, but my enthusiasm was there, and then shortly after that time frame, I got hired to work at Mossman Guitars in Winfield, Kansas in 1975, and worked for them for a few years, and that was the beginning, and never looked back. So how how long did you work at Mossman? So I worked at Mossman for about two years, and um, after that, I started doing repair work at the same time for a music store in Wichita called EM Shorts Guitars. Worked for there for several, no, not a couple more years, uh, and moved to California. And at that point, moved to San Francisco and uh, worked for what the time was called uh, Guitar Solo, now GSP. And I've done their repairs and still do some of their uh, repairs, their bigger problematic high-end repairs. From time to time, they'll ship me something. But that was for many years there. And and then uh, two or three stints working for Santa Cruz Guitars for Richard Hoover as he needed yeah. me to step in to fill the void for people who were gone or left or just just, just keeping production happening. So. Uh-huh. And when uh, yeah. at these uh, guitar companies, you were doing some building, or what were you doing? Yes, this, these were the building aspects um, at Mossman Guitars. I was initially there to do all their setup works. So uh, in the setup room, out came bodies and necks lacquered, and we assembled next to bodies, glued and fitted bridges, made nuts and saddles and fret jobs, and and pretty much the same thing for Santa Cruz Guitars, too. It's like you got two parts of guitar that have gone through production and now every disparity that didn't get recognized now needs to be accounted for when necks and bridges go on. And so that was a skill set I had uh, yeah. acquired and was most useful to these companies in that regard. I also built boxes and uh, assembled necks and things like that. Pretty much I worked in machine rooms too, and pretty much the whole gamut, but that was mostly where the lion's share of my time was, was in the assemb- final assembly and set up and make them into guitars, playing yeah. guitars. 
Have you ever done any custom builds on your own? Only a handful. Uh, so much. That's so much my passion to get there at some point. Uh, the last guitar, well, I'm actually finishing a guitar now that has been in the process for over 10 years. Wow. So that kind of says where my time to pull my own projects out on the workbench is just not readily available. I'm mostly buried in repair and restoration work. Oh, man, but I, I, I really hear that. do enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, that's my problem is I'm so buried in repairs that I don't get a chance to do the stuff I want to do. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. like the mechanic who drives around in a beater because he's fixing everybody else's car. He yeah. never gets time for his own. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at what, <clears throat> at what point did you relocate to Seattle, the Seattle area? So moved to Seattle in 2005. Uh, got married at the tender age of 50 and joined my lovely wife up here. And I already had a few clients in the area. I did some repairs already for Emerald City. Uh, not for Emerald City, but um, for uh, Jim Brown at Jet City Guitars. And made my acquaintance with the uh, Rosewood Guitar Shop, which is a classical guitar shop in the city. And uh, started with uh, those guys in the early days and still had clients around the country that would ship things to me from the East Coast, California, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm sure my rival. Yeah. Well, I'm sure glad that uh, we've connected uh, through Emerald City Guitars because I do, you know, I do 90. 95% 95% of the repairs that come in there, but occasionally I'll get a repair that it's. I know it's going to take me three or four solid days uh, of work to do, and I just don't have that the time to do some of the more extensive repairs, and I'm so glad that I can hand them off to you and know that they're going to be done uh, perfectly and know that they're going to be done uh, uh, just, you know, with no... With no corners cut, you you just do such excellent work. I'm just I'm I'm really a fan of your work. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate that, and I do appreciate you uh, feeding me these repairs. I, I'm really happy to have the association with Emerald City Guitars too. It's a great shop, and a lot of cool vintage stuff comes through, and it's wonderful people to work for and with. And um, okay. it, 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 it's a feather in my cap too to be a part of your your uh, repair offerings down there. So thank Good. you much too. Yeah, and and it's great to to meet someone like you. Well, not only have you got so much experience, but you're really in tune with what needs to be done to um, to keep the uh, uh, the integrity of a vintage guitar intact. You know, so many repair guys can just you know they maybe they do good work, but they just bulldoze the the originality of the guitar, and they can you can really destroy the value on a guitar, even if the even if the guitar, even if the work is done well, if it's not done in the right way, you can really hurt the value on some of these vintage, especially vintage acoustic instruments. I couldn't agree more. And uh, that is, you know, there, there are people out there with very great skills, just like you said. They do, do excellent work. I've seen people whose work is downright scary good, but they don't necessarily see the whole picture, at least the way I do. I would, for in 41 years of doing repair and building, I would say it's in the last 20 years that I kind of the light bulb went off and an aha, a way of thinking and considering everything, all the aspects about a guitar, because if you haven't thought it through correctly, even with the best of skills, you're proceeding in the wrong direction, then you're going to get less than optimal results, either in, like you say, the in protecting the originality and value in, uh, of the vintage instrument, or in... Um, what I call painting oneself in a corner by doing things that 
don't leave you the outs uh, and forever modified and changed and and devalued for that. So yeah, you know, and, a, yeah. a big part of that for me is using original materials when it's possible. You know, a, a lot of times that's that's hard to do. Uh, ivory is, of course, there's a ban on ivory. There has been for fifty years. Uh, Brazilian rosewood is the same thing. There are materials available, but it's just getting scarcer and scarcer. And, uh, you know, things like hide glue, um, some of the old techniques and old materials, that's why those guitars sound so good, isn't it? Don't you think? I think it's a key component with it. There are so so many new builders who are trying to do tribute uh, work to the golden age of American guitar building. Uh, but I feel like they've kind of disregarded some of the most important aspects and for sure one of those would be the use of hide glue instead of aliphatic or vinyl glues like so so many people use um i just feel like if we emulate what what the original people used and what's still always to this day used in the violin world uh we can't go wrong and and having worked with uh, hide glue for instance it's such a remarkably wonderful material to uh join things with and then re-separate again down the road as needed. So high yeah. glue is the glue that affords uh, effective repairs down the road without de- degrading the wood or the joint, uh, things like that, where the other glues really create problems. You know, when I, and, and the materials, too. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, uh, the other thing about high glue that I feel it, uh, that it's superior to the, the modern glues is that it, it transfers vibration better. Yes. Uh, it dries glass hard, uh, and it almost creates a vacuum and just draws wood together so tightly. I have left uh, high glue in my little glass terrines that I heated in, and uh, one time I forgot about it, and I thought, well, I'll just see what this does to just continue to watch it dry. And as it slowly dehydrated, uh, it became like glass hard, and then when I finally pulled the glue out of the glass terrine, it actually... Uh, etched the glass. It uh, it was molecular. I don't know what occurs, but it, the bond was so strong wow. that it actually dimpled and etched the glass. Well, wow. so that's powerful adhesion. Yeah, it is. And with with the modern glues, the aliphatic resins, that like tight bond, and the wood glues like that. You know, when they dry, even when they dry fully cured, they they still just have this kind of very slightly rubbery thing going on that can't right. be good for, for the transfer no, of, a, of string there's energy. There's always that film between the joint and it creeps. The joints creep and that's nothing we need in neck sets or especially bridges. So Yeah, it almost acts the, like a... It almost the real act- bane of, of guitar repair is bridges that have been re-glued too many times for failed joints and done yeah. with tight bond yeah. where the, the joint itself on the spruce it gets eroded and degraded because it has to be cleaned each time and it's yeah. hard to pull all of that that vinyl glue out of there and uh, whereas high glue washes off with hot water and you use no wood fibers everything's clean and you have a fresh joint ready to go with the tight bonds and, and vinyl glues like that they you have to kind of get to a new surface and so i've had to build up the spruce in tops where it's been eroded and scooped out by as much as 50 percent wow and uh that void uh, you can't glue to that void the glue can't fill that void and have any strength Plus, tonally, it just doesn't do a thing for it. So yeah. adding the spruce back has been a common repair for some of these uh, repeated bridge re-glues. And then when the spruce is back and the joint's tight and it's high glue back in there again, things are good to go for a long time. Yeah. 
You know, I, I'll I'll still use vinyl glue on in some occasions. I'm curious to know if you do. Uh, let me think here. The last time I used any vinyl glue, I think only on a cheap instrument where it was built with such poor materials and something just needed to be closed up quickly uh, yeah. for somebody. But uh, in general. No, I, I don't think I've. I don't think I've used it more than once or twice in the last twenty-five years. Yeah. Well, and you predominantly work on only high-end instruments, so that's probably why. I I do a lot of uh, work on all kinds of instruments, so I I definitely see my right. share of my, my share of cheap Asian instruments that I just don't. A lot of times, don't, you know, I don't feel like it warrants heating up the glue. Right. Well, the time and effort to fit uh, glue uh, to to work with high glue to create a, a good joint. Uh, there's a lot more prep time. I mean, I pretty much have to have, uh, and when I'm gluing anything with high glue, it's uh, all the calls are cut, all the clamps are laid out. I pre-clamp everything, then unclamp and lay things out in a very systematic uh, order so that when it's time to brush the surfaces with glue, uh, you have seconds basically to create that joint and give it its initial squeeze and to get it to hold. And then uh, with my clamps pre-laid out, then just go through a very, efficient but quick system of throwing the clamps in and tightening everything and cleaning it up and uh, and good to go. So it does. it is more time involved, more labor intensive, and sometimes I have to work fast. Uh, oh, yeah. That's one thing friends have noticed when I'm in my shop sometimes. Uh, they have to step back and just watch and say nothing because I'm moving quick. <laughs> yeah, that stuff sets up fast. Hide glue really sets fast, and if you're not, if you're not prepared for it, you can really get in a mess fast. Right, and you can rehydrate it along the way. There's yeah. some methods to steam and add hot water and things like that. But uh, but for, let's say, the most important joint, I think, on the whole guitar is probably that bridge joint. Uh, and just getting that pressed in place and held to where it takes its initial bond and then adding clamps, uh, it's a good joint. It works very well. Yeah. You know, another glue that I use a lot is super glue. Um, I don't really yeah. use it in structural applications, but it's got so many other uh, applications. Do you ever use any cyanacrylate glue, super glue? Uh, I use it. That's the only other glue I use, and I use it for, I glue all my frets in with super glue when cool. I do refrets. Yeah, uh, me too. I actually add glue to the end of the fret and clamp them in place. Yeah. I'll use it to repair ebony where there's checks, cracks, or slivers, or chips. Yeah, me too. And ebony dust and, and uh, super glue make wonderful patches and repairs. Uh, the spot repair on nuts, uh, where the, the the slots are cut too deep, I, I'll put in bone or ivory dust and I drop a super glue and accelerator and it makes a perfect amalgam, sort of like a dentist's amalgam for repairing teeth. Yeah. It works very well. And so, yeah, life is so much easier with super glue on so many small repairs and, and fittings that way. When You know, I've got a few old... Um guitar repair books from the 60s and 70s that are really interesting to read and it cracks me up one of them um i think it's the hero kamimoto book uh yes complete, hideo kamimoto yeah right. to, mm-hmm. yeah today okay uh hideo that's his name uh yes it cracks me up because he's talking about this new space age glue called super glue um yeah so when you started out were 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 guitar repair guys using much super glue no, there wasn't super glue when I started. And in fact, the other glue that people were trying to put frets in and things like that was either the tight bond, uh, which just took too long to set up. Some people would use epoxies uh, or five-minute epoxies. And again, I, I find that epoxies kind of creep too. Um, but there just wasn't super glue back in the day. In the, in the early days, 
there really was uh, not much of a roadmap for this stuff uh, yeah. in terms of we didn't have Stuart McDonald Luthier Supplies or Luthier's Mercantile. Right. There weren't specialized tools or awareness or protocols and procedures to even work on these guitars back or then. Or schools or anything like that, yeah. Yeah, so so all of this sort of came of age, but the super glue, when that was available to the public, that was uh, um, just a miracle fix for so many quick spot repairs. And like I said, particularly things like frets and gluing little chips and bits and things like that. It's yeah. wonderful stuff in that regard. I've been... I've been repairing guitars about 20 years, and it's amazing because um, it's. I've been fortunate uh, to pretty much the entire time to have the resources that, that have been available um, that if I'd started earlier, I wouldn't have had, you know, the, I mean, the Internet, for one thing. People are posting YouTube videos and, and all kinds of things about guitar repair. It's such a good resource there. It's also, oh, yeah. It also can be yeah, a bad... The Amazing for it all. Yeah, absolutely. It can be a bad resource if because there's bad information on there too. But um, you know, super super <laughs> glue, sure. all the all the things that uh, are just um, I just started out with. You know, it's amazing to think that you know if you were repairing guitars in the seventies, it was just it was there was just no such thing. There was there wasn't some of those materials available. Uh, well, and there are things that have gotten very. Uh, Contrarian, uh, and in fact, some of the old repair methods are are uh, horrifying, actually, and yeah. uh, do sort of strike a mark against guitars. For instance, uh, guitars were needing neck sets, and originally, people didn't really have their their methodology quite figured out as nicely as we do today. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, one of the most frightening ones, and I, I never did this; I've seen it, but it just never sounded right to me. Was uh, instead of removing the neck, the uh, neck block was freed from the back and yeah. the sides, and the sides were just pulled in, and then the lip that was created by the excess back material was carved away and then rerouted for the binding, and basically just sort of torquing the body shape and the reattaching, yeah. and uh, that's a horrible repair. I yeah, think. well, I've I've heard it called the California neck reset. I don't know why, but that's yeah, the California slip or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I've seen it in guitars that have it. I kind of groan. Yeah. Yeah, so that's one of those out there. And there's a few more. that next used to be steamed with t- slicing the heel cap off and then steaming the joint through there and then reassembling that or through the neck block on the inside. But uh, those weren't quite so invasive. But yeah. point being that it, it, you can look look this up online or uh, and find exactly what you should do to treat these things correctly yeah the so. only the only time the neck block slip seems like it might be approaching uh appropriate to me is on guitars where you can't reset the neck like some of the asian yamahas where there's where they're epoxied on or doweled on i've heard of right, guys exactly. doing that but but I, I just don't even i don't want to do those i i well, I've you know had, it's a lot of work it's very invasive and and to cosmetically dial all that up and have it present well it's a tremendous amount of work it probably would start to question whether it exceeds the value of the instrument. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot of people. The, I've had a lot ahead. of people ask me over the years to do a neck reset on a Yamaha, and I just won't do them. I I've just never been in there, and I don't know what's going on in there. But I assume they're epoxied on, and the only way to do it uh, would be to slip the they heel. Have two dowels is what the older ones were, and they were flush butt with two dowels. Yeah, and a pretty tough glue. And I've heard of people sawing the neck off. 
and carefully, and you can buy a saw that only has the curve set on one side, so you can do that saw cut uh, with some caution without really scarring up the sides, and so there is a method to do that. Yeah, and then you have a flush butt joint, and the only thing that really holds a flush butt joint is probably something like epoxy at that point. Yeah, and dowels. Uh, but again, I try to stay away from that stuff. It's not anything I want to spend my time with. Me too. Uh, they just weren't made yeah. to come apart. They just weren't made to come apart. That's the thing. No, and I understand the temptation. A lot of old Yamahas actually sound pretty good. They're yeah. all plywood guitars. They're remarkably nice sounding guitars, and they have yeah. some age on them. Uh, but yeah, they just weren't made to come apart and be worked on. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious. I wanted to ask you about kind of as far as you know the history of neck resets because I've heard different information from different people, and I, you know, one a few of the old uh, guitar repair books that I've got from the '70s mention neck resets, although they're not terribly detailed about it. Uh, right. Were people doing neck resets on vintage Martins when you started doing repairs in the '70s? Uh, no, I, I wasn't aware of it in the 70s. The first book that I got a hold of was Don Teeter's book, and he had two volumes, actually, and he used a lot of epoxy. And I, I don't recall right now if you mentioned much about the neck set or taking the neck out. My he, he did. initial he, recollection was with uh, an article in, I think, Fretz Magazine talking to one of the, uh, Richard, I think, at uh, Griffin Music, who was talking about doing a neck reset. Oh. And, and I was very aware that this is something I really needed to get get involved with and start doing because it's pivotal to make these things play with. You know, the idea yeah. of shaving bridges down or oh, yeah. planing, trying to plane fingerboards to find the angle is not, I could see that wasn't the avenue to really produce the results. And uh, so when that article came out, I read it and then I called him up and got a little bit more information from him and I just started tackling some cheaper instruments, taking them apart and trying it. And it's sort of become my favorite repair to do. That's my specialty is neck resets and trying to read all the problems inherent with a neck and a body and at the same time in doing that to try to correct those factors and so that somebody has a nice playing guitar again. Yeah. You, you mentioned Don Teeter's book and I, if I remember right, he did do neck resets and, and uh, again, it wasn't really a method we'd want to use today. I think he would saw the fingerboard off. That's right. Yeah, saw the fingerboard off at the fourteenth um, fret yeah. or wherever the body uh, neck joined the body. That's right, and then uh, putting up. That's right. He would put a, some sort of like a hot knife with yeah. water into the joint and kind of boil it around in there or something yeah. like that, and then start to press it apart. Yeah, not something we'd want so. to do today. You can't blame him. I mean, these pioneers, you know, they they didn't have any guideposts along the way, and they were kind of burning new territory there. But the the way I heard the story was that the Martin factory would would do customer neck resets but they didn't want anybody to know about it like they didn't uh, they didn't want the secret out of yeah. how you know they they would tell people oh those necks don't come off right and then somehow along the way yeah, we all figured that. it out i don't know well again with the internet we had the free exchange of information and that's done wonders for repairs and uh, i have seen some very clever things that people have come up with uh for instance one of the very cool things. Uh, I'm trying to remember whose work this was. I, I'm drawing a blank right now, but the ability to re the top needed to be replaced on an instrument, uh, you know, damage beyond salvageability, and being able to set up a jig with the new top such in a manner to route the old top off and route the new top that's going to go in at the same time by having it taped in place and shimmed up. 
so that when the guitar new top is braced, uh, it fits inside of the old binding, original binding and purflings, and um, makes for a very clean-looking repair that never got disturbed, so the binding stays intact. Hmm. Possibly, I think, maybe another route for one of the inner purflings, but the outer binding is, is there and intact, and it can, done well, it can really fool somebody. to wow. Like, did this ever happen? Wow. And I, that's, that's my goal is to go in, do the repairs, and step back out and try to make it look like uh, uh, nobody's ever been there. Yeah, and not to fool anybody, but just to make it, you know, the integrity of the instrument uh, there. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Always full disclosure when it comes time oh, to, yeah. you know, of selling a guitar or talking about it. But uh, but that's the idea. If you can make a, a repair that nobody can even know and you tell them about it, of course you're proud of that sort of thing. And yeah, and, happy it, to and, it, and it maintains the value of, of the instrument. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask you about ivory versus bone. You know, I, I hear you hear so much talk about tone, and everybody's ears are different. But um, you know, bone is kind of the standard nowadays because we don't really use ivory anymore on new instruments. But uh, I wanted right. to, I wanted to talk to you about that and and hear your opinion on on the differences of ivory versus bone. Well, we know that Martin used it all the way, I think, up until, I think, the mid to late 60s. Gibson typically always used bone. Um, so that having been said, I've, I've had a small stash of Brazilian rosewood and ivory over the years, purchased legally with receipts and accounts and all that. And I say that because one of the persons that I bought my ivory and pearl from way back in the day uh, was raided by the feds and confiscated everything. And he actually did produced documents from his original day in business and kind of completely baffled him that his records were that good. And so point being, there was a legal trade and harvest in ivory at one point and in Brazilian rosewood um, before CITES treaty and all that. And so I saw my point is in saying this, I have these materials that I save for where vintage appropriate. And what I would say about ivory versus bone is bone is uh, more glass-like in its tap tone, and ivory sounds more like a piece of wood. It's got a grain-like wood. Mm-hmm. Bone is more porous, uh, more like an amalgam uh, or with a porosity to it, uh, density or porosity, depending on the cut of the bone. But ivory is, behaves more like the grain of a dense wood. So when you tap them, uh, just uh, I would do this sometimes with just saddle blanks, and just tap them on an anvil or something, uh, a nice hard surface, and just listen to their tones, and generally, the ivory always has a, a deeper, lower, I would call it a woodier tone, and the, and the bone is a glassier tone. And so everything being so microphonic around the bridge of acoustic guitar, uh, I would consider them sometimes as tone filters. What what you use for the saddle material can ha- impart some effect on the harmonics, uh, the frequency of the, of the sound of the instrument. So mm-hmm. if I, for instance, have wanted to brighten up a guitar, my first... In general, my first uh, suggestion might be to go with bone, and if somebody wanted a warmer tone, uh, they might go with a piece of ivory. Wow. But generally, if I'm working on an old Martin, I try to use the ivory for that because that's what was there. Yeah. And um, and that's appropriate to, just for the originality's sake. But anymore, I always offer that it up to people that if they're thinking of traveling with their guitar out of the country or something like that, they might want to go with bone just to avoid being hassled if somebody were to some inspector, overly zealous inspector, were to put a 
magnifying glass or a loop on a piece of ivory and go, oh, that's ivory there. Let's see your receipts. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry that we're going to keep this guitar. Yeah. I've heard a few horror stories, but I it don't happens. know if they're myth or, or fact. I don't know, but it, who needs to find out? Yeah. What do you think about fossil ivory? Um, I've got some fossilized mammoth ivory that looks great, but it to me it, it behaves more like bone, I guess because it's been mineralized. Uh, but that's right. cer- that's exactly. certainly legal. I'll call it more bone like too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's it's definitely got a beautiful stuff. Though. It is beautiful, and it you know if it sounds as good as bone and has a nice grain to it, I don't see any reason not to use it. Um, it is beautiful oh, absolutely. stuff. Absolutely, it's hard yeah. to get good pieces of it big enough without voids. Is what I've found, and then it can be kind of pricey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, uh, truss rods. We all know that vintage Martins don't have truss rod, uh, an adjustable truss rod. They've got just the uh, the, the metal. Um, yeah, originally, well, originally they just only had an ebony insert. Right. And later on they had a, a steel T-bar. And right. then, then they went back to the ebony uh, insert again during wartime years with the metal shortages. And then after that, the T-bar again. And then to a square tube later mm-hmm. on and then ultimately to an adjustable truss rod. Yeah, in what, like the, and, mid, the mid-80s, I think? Yeah, I think so. That sounds about right. And me personal, my personal tastes are that if you could have just a neck that was strong and straight and it didn't matter if it had tension on or off, that would be the ideal because that would mean that the neck is so rigid uh, and stable that when the string is plucked and, and stretched that all that energy goes into the bridge in the top rather than the neck slightly deflecting and absorbing some of that. Yeah. Uh, I have worked on some guitars with truss rods where the neck has no inherent strength at all. Yeah. And really it's the truss rod doing the work, almost like a big counterbalance spring. Yeah. So that when you would sight the neck with no tension on it, the neck had a huge reverse bow, but then under tension, you could dial it with the truss rod exactly to the amount of you know, minimal release that you want for an ideal neck and by appearances it looks right but when you think you know i guess you know, physically what's happening there the, the neck's acting like a big spring and i think it's absorbing some of the energy that should be going into the top and ultimately losing some tone and volume for that yeah. so if we can make a straight stiff neck that's my choice and my preference and uh yeah that's interesting that's really interesting because that's exactly what a truss rod is doing is it's it's almost like a spring like a counterbalance spring, mm-hmm. yeah, hmm. yeah. Interesting. And, I, and I understand for people wanting to fine tune electrics for you know with different string gauges. I think guitars are built to handle a variety of string gauges and uh, playing styles. And I don't think it's as critical there. It's probably, I'm sure, most people appreciate yeah. having a the ability to lightly adjust a truss rod when you're playing with nines or tens in the fingerboard. It's you know the right. strings are set right to the fingerboard, and if there's a little too much relief or too much uh, backbow, that's, you have that adjustability, and I, I think that's a very valid use of it. But in acoustic instruments, I think we can get away from it. Yeah, it's a different and, world, uh, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, different, completely different world. Do you do you do much with electric guitars? Only from the mechanical aspects. I'll, I'll uh, fix, you know, do refrets, uh, and I'll fix broken headstocks or damage, anything physically... Uh, that they need repairing on, I'll do. But when it comes to electrics, I step away and proudly defer to that stuff to people like you. Yeah, well, I, I, that's most of what I send you is acoustic guitars. So I never really thought to ask, but I, I assumed that you work on on electric guitars, like you say. You know, just when uh, the mechanics of them. Yeah. 
Yeah, broken headstock's a pretty common when they're doing a lot of people's electrics when they come because when they take a dive, all that weight coming down on that headstock and typically like a Gibson headstock where there's a big cavity in it because there's a truss rod at the at the top of the neck there the, the and the actually access point and it's also because of the nature of the way the neck's carved from a billet it's a very short grain there and so that tends to be where necks want to pop is right yeah. there and uh, so I, I've developed some good repairs that will make sure that that joint is stronger than new and uh, mm-hmm. without without looking you know I can make it as nice as somebody wants or as utility as somebody wants it just depends yeah. what the budget is and what the guitar calls for. Do, will you go as far as refinishing the, that area after you've done the repair? I have one of the tricks I do if something's really degraded or typically been glued before and then it comes to my shop where the joint, the, the crack has just been degraded too much, uh, I'll actually glue the peg, peg head back on and then take a very careful slice and grind a scorp out of the back of the headstock and bend a new piece of mahogany or maple, whatever the neck uh, is made out of, bend a new piece in. And uh, so that it's nice long grain that's fitting in there, and then I'll carve that into shape, and then do the appropriate stain fill and relacquering or shellacking depends on what it's what's required there to yeah. bring it in. And uh, it's a strong repair. It's always a it's always a repair, but it's a repair that typically a person can rest assured they're never going to have to deal with that again. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and done well, I think it's a legitimate repair. A lot of people are, I think, uh, guitars values are degraded a lot with broken headstocks and broken heels on necks because they're oftentimes repaired poorly. Yeah. And uh, once they're glued once with the wrong glue, you don't really get a second chance. That's the beauty, again, of high glue. If the joint fails, high glue can always be redone again without any degradation to the crack or the joint. And with these other glues, again, you get once, and after that, it's a diminishing returns on the success rate of and without doing something much more involved to, like I just spoke about, you know, laminating a piece on the back of the headstock there, something like that. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, that, you know, I that's all I've got for today. I just, I really appreciate you joining me on the podcast. How can people get in touch with you? Um, they, they, uh, if 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 they've got repairs for you here in the uh, Seattle area, I know they can come through Emerald City Guitars. Is do you have- right? I'm always happy to support the store there. Uh, so that's for sure. Um, an easy way to do it. Uh, because I do live on the Kitsap Peninsula, I'm a, I'm not the most convenient uh, destination, but the store is always great. But I always can be uh, reached via email or a phone number, and my my email is my name Mark Tossman at yahoo.com, and my phone number is 206-914-1040. And uh, so I'm always available to speak with, and I'm happy to talk about guitars or advise and. And should the need for repairs arise, we can meet at um, Emerald City or or wherever it can works out conveniently yeah. for yeah for and the exchange. Yeah, great. And yeah. I'm I'm happy to send you some of this work too because I'm 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 just drowning in repairs, you know. And it's repairs that I that I can uh, do in a timely manner, you know, so that uh, some of these repairs that are, that would take me three days, if I'm able to to farm them out to you, then I'm 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 not going to fall so right. far behind, you know, because that's, that's the trick is trying to keep my turnaround time down to a, about a week. And, uh, boy, exactly. I, if, if I get... It's, it's true, though. In your shop, you, you could just probably stay busy all day long just setting up every guitar that walked in the door, and it would be a valuable service and a profitable service for you and a great service for the customer. And I've done that 
for many, many years of my life, just had a repair shop in the store and just took everything that comes in. Uh, but I do enjoy the challenges of the bigger jobs at this time in, in my life. It's, I actually don't make – I put more time into the repairs. And I don't make quite the same money with my bag of tricks just doing, you know, setups and refrets quickly, things like that that I, yeah. I really have down well. But, you know, you got to grind a lot of metal to do a little bit of woodworking in, in that venue of uh, guitar repair. And yeah. I like the woodwork aspect. So I'm, I'm happy to do the bigger jobs and take more time with it. And that's still the joy and the challenge for me. Yeah. So. It, and it's so time consuming. It's, it's hard to bill the amount of hours that you actually spent doing some of these more extensive repairs just because they're so complicated. Yeah, my wife tells me all the time I'm in denial about what time I'm spending and what I'm charging, but you know, <laughs> somehow, I don't know, it all works. Yeah, it all, it all <laughs> comes together. Great. Well, I, I really appreciate you joining me here on the podcast, and I uh, look forward to keep working with you in the future. Well, thank you, Eric. And I have one last statement I'd like to offer up everybody who owns a vintage guitar, is that although perhaps mostly wealthy people own the expensive guitars and the rest of us, or we're lucky to own whatever it is we have and cherish it, be mindful that it isn't really ownership exclusively, but more stewardship. These guitars outlive us. Properly cared for, these guitars will go through several generations of owners. And giving them their best care and their best thought forward for how they can be preserved for the future is what my intentions and efforts are are towards these instruments. So everybody be good stewards. Love your guitars. Play them. Use them, but don't abuse them. And when they need help, you know, bring them to the right people who care about them this way. Oh, that's great, man. I, I really appreciate that. Okay, Eric. Okay. Well, have a good one. We'll see you soon. Thanks, man. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Well, that just about wraps it up for this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks to Mark Tossman for that great interview. Thanks to Chad Gerby for joining me on the show. Thanks to my lovely co-host, Melissa. And uh, thanks to you for listening. Make sure you participate in the show. You can do that by going to my website, ericdaw.com, E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and submit your question or comment there. Or call the show. I'll play those voicemails as part of the show, 757-774-8482. And uh, find me online, ericdaw.com, fretfiles.com, pinupcustomguitars.com. Uh, and I really want to thank Michael Van Dieven over there at ufoship.com for uh, posting these episodes to the internet on his podcast network. Thanks, y'all. See you next month.